As I alluded to at the beginning of the service, we're starting a new sermon series called The Meaningful Life, which is a study of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We're going to study the first 11 verses of the book today. Um, If you did walk in a little bit late from uh, the beginning of worship and didn't hear this, there are notes sheets on the back table that you can grab. Um, There's no shame in getting up, especially while I'm reading the text, to go grab one of those and grab a pen so that you can follow along with the sermon today. I'll read the text for us. Like I said, the first 11 verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun." Is there anyone, anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was already here, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. This is the word of God. So this series uh, is on the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're calling it The Meaningful Life uh, because the book of Ecclesiastes is trying to answer what I think many of us feel, which is that I'm not sure that this is all there is to life. Like my day in, day out grind, the things that I do, the things that I care about, at some point they get a little bit unsatisfying and we wonder, is this really all that there is to life? You might feel stuck. You might feel like you're in a rut. Ecclesiastes is here to answer that problem. How do we live a meaningful life? That's what we're going to answer in this series. And we're going to do it, like I said, through the book of Ecclesiastes, which for my money is, I think, the most underrated book in the entire Bible. It is a book that has so much awesome material in it, and yet almost nobody knows it. In fact, if we would take a poll, I would guess that a good chunk of you, maybe even the majority of you, have not read the book of Ecclesiastes or haven't done it recently. So what we're going to do today is we're going to intro the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to try to understand it, like where is it coming from, what is it about, and then in the second half of today's message, we're going to dig into the, the foundation of the teaching of Ecclesiastes, um, which is the title that you saw on the title slide, Everything is Meaningless, like the author says in the first couple verses. So that's where we're going today. We're first starting with the introductory material, so if you are taking notes, we're starting on point one. Um, Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon, at least likely. Um, There is some scholarly debate about who wrote the the book of Ecclesiastes, but most people would agree that Solomon, the son of David, was the author of the book. You can see that right from the first verse when he says that he was the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. These are uh, descriptors that would make sense uh, to be of Solomon. So we put this writing at about the year 1000 BC, because that's about when we know King David lived. And there is uh, extra biblical evidence, too, that back up this idea of David being the king in Israel at that time. Solomon, if you, if you don't know, he has a really interesting story. Uh, Solomon got this uh, really unique interaction with God, where God came to Solomon and said, Hey, Solomon, I'll give you whatever you want. Just ask. 
Uh, some people think that, the, that God is kind of like a, a genie in a lamp, and he's not, except for this one time where he is, when he comes to, to Solomon and says, whatever you want, you can have it. And Solomon asks for wisdom in that account. And so God gives him wisdom so that Solomon is the wisest person who has ever and will ever live. So what we get in the book of Ecclesiastes is the work of the wisest person who ever lived, along with the book of Proverbs, of which he wrote most of it, and then also the book of Song of Songs, or sometimes called Song of Solomon. These are all what is called Solomonic wisdom literature, these three books of the Bible. They're a little picture into the wisest mind that has ever lived. So Solomon writes this book for us. What is this book about? Um, to understand what the book of Ecclesiastes is about, I want you to think less of the book as a book and more of the book as a person. And then I want to compare that person with another book that we're going to consider as a person, and that's Proverbs. If you look at the book of Proverbs, if you were to try to describe the book of Proverbs as a person, I think you would come to the conclusion that it's something like an upbeat, idealistic, like just graduated university student. They've learned so much about how the world works. They've figured it all out. They are ready to take on the world. In many ways, the book of Proverbs, which many of you, if you attend here regularly, are familiar with because we study it every week, this is what the book of Proverbs is doing. It's saying, this is how to live a wise life. I have studied, and I've learned, and this is what you're supposed to do if you want to live a wise life. So if that's the book of Proverbs, then what is the book of Ecclesiastes? Again, not a book, but a person. Ecclesiastes is like the dark cynic sitting in the back corner booth of the dimly lit bar, watching that idealistic college student and saying to her, good luck, honey. Because Ecclesiastes has seen a few things. Ecclesiastes has realized that you can have everything figured out. You can have all the right answers. You can put in all the efforts you want. And sometimes things don't work. You can take care of your body and get cancer at 40. You can raise your kids with all of the parenting techniques from every book that's out on the market and they can still go off the rails. You can put in the extra hours and still get let go. You can do everything right and have it not work out. Ecclesiastes is like that middle-aged cynic who says, sure, maybe that works some of the time, but not all of the time. And in this way, I think Ecclesiastes it brings a really cool perspective to the Bible. And this, by the way, is one of those places where the Bible kind of shows you that it's not written by human beings, but written by God. Because what does every other world religion, every other system of thought do? It sells you on its product. It's like a sales pitch, right? And some of you have sat through a sales pitch, maybe for a vacuum cleaner or a condominium or something like this. And the person has told you everything great about whatever they're selling. But you know in the back of your mind, it's not that great. I mean, there are some things that are obviously weaknesses. He's just not telling me those things. There's some places where this doesn't work. He's just not telling me. And we get a little bit uncomfortable when we get in those situations, right? Because we feel like we're not getting the whole story. Every religion does this. It says, here's the ideal. Here's how you can live a good life. But never do those religions do what Christianity does and say, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you pray and you read your Bible and you go to church and you get in community and you still struggle with doubt. And you still struggle with fear. And you still struggle with those besetting sins. Like, it's realistic. And I actually think that that's because the Bible is authentic. Like, it's not trying to sell you on some way of thinking that's going to make your life better. It's just saying, this is reality, and you're living in it. Might as well acknowledge it. 
Now, a way to think of this is like, sometimes I think when we consider a religious worldview, we sort of think of ourselves like in a hallway and there's a whole bunch of doors down that hallway and each of the doors is one of the systems of thought or religion that we could go into. And Christianity is one of those doors and we could open the door and go into it. But actually the reality is we're already in the Christian world. We're in the Christian room, so to speak. And there are doors, but they lead nowhere. You open them and you fall into a void. There is only one reality. It's the reality that we're living in. It's the reality where a man who is God came to this earth, died, rose again. That's proven not just by scripture, but by historical evidence. We're just living in this world. We can either deny it or accept it. And the book of Ecclesiastes is that realistic take on the world that says, you're living in the Christian worldview. Are you going to deny it? Are you going to hide from it? Or are you going to accept it? So as you think of Ecclesiastes, think of that dark cynic and realize that Ecclesiastes shows that the Bible is realistic. It's not showing you this perfect ivory idea of what life could be. It's saying, this is the world that you live in. You know it, you see it. Let's acknowledge it and live in it. Now, to get this idea across, there are three terms that I think you need to know. I think you have to have them operating in your your brain as we go through this book. And there are three that are on the notes sheet for you. Three terms that we need to define and have working for us. The first is under the sun. You heard the author use it a couple times in the first couple verses that we read, under the sun. Uh, Under the sun is a life without windows. You're saying that's just as confusing as under the sun, pastor. (laughs) Um, That's not helping me. Life without windows is to to think of life this way. Like if you're in a room and there are no windows or doors in that room, there may be life going going on outside of that room, but you can't see it. You can't know what it is. You can't interact with it. You might even start to think maybe there is no life outside of that room. Um, But if there's a window, you can see out. You can see that there is life happening outside of that room. And and people's worldviews tend to fit into one of these two categories, either a life with or without windows. You're in this life, this room that we're in, and either you think there's nothing outside of this life, or if there is, we can't attain it, we can't interact with it, we can't accept it or anything like that. Or you believe, yes, this is the world that we live in, but there is something else beyond this life. There's a spiritual realm, there's a heaven, there's a God, whatever you might think. As the author uses the phrase, under the sun, what he is trying to communicate to us is a life without windows, a life on its own merit. This world, all that I can see and touch and smell and taste and feel, is all that there is. And maybe you consider this kind of the atheistic worldview, right? And that's true enough. But the the fact of the matter is, even if you're not an atheist, you feel this way sometimes. You live life on the basis of just what you see, rather than bringing in an external force like a god or the sort of a universe or anything like this. You live just on the basis of what you see and feel day to day. So under the sun is the first term. The second one is somewhat related, and that's meta-narrative. Meta-narrative. If you break the word apart, you can start to understand it. A narrative, right, like narration, is a story. Meta is a word that means to go beyond. So it's the beyond story or the overarching story, the story behind the story. Some people also will refer to this as a worldview. It's how I look at the world, how I understand the world. Every one of us has this, whether we realize it or not. We have a worldview, an overarching story, a meta narrative to the things that we interact with. To give you a couple just dumb examples of this, if you walk into a room and in the room, a whole bunch of people are sitting quietly in chairs, what is happening in that room? You can't possibly know 
without an overarching story. Is it a waiting room at a doctor's office? Is it a church? Is it something else? You can only make sense of what's happening in that room if you have a bigger story that is happening beyond what you see. Or give you another example. You're dating and the guy dumps you. What's your reaction to that? Well, you might say, I got dumped because I'm fat and ugly. Or, I got dumped because boys are fat and ugly. But see, the, what happened doesn't change. It's, it's how you perceive what happened, and you perceive it differently on the basis of the story that you are telling yourself about yourself all the time. If you go into dating and you think, I'm a catch, I'm smart, I'm funny, I'm successful, I'm well off, any boy would be lucky to have me. Well, then when he dumps you, you're going to tell yourself the story that I got dumped because boys are fat and ugly. But if you go into dating thinking, uh, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of kind of homely, <laughs> not that interesting, and usually people don't really like me that much. When he dumps you, then you're going to say, well, I got dumped because I'm fat and ugly. The events are the exact same. But the story that you're telling yourself about yourself day to day influences how you see those same actions. This is a meta-narrative. It is a story that we tell ourselves. And it, it doesn't just have to be in the little things of our life. It can be in the big things, too. Why are countries at war? Why is the economy collapsing? Why did they vote for that guy? Whatever thing you might want to say or see in your life, you have a story that you're telling yourself about that thing. This is the reason, by the way, that we have something like partisan politics. The same action can happen, and two groups of people can see it completely differently because of the story that they're telling themselves about themselves and the world all the time. Now, what Ecclesiastes is trying to get you to consider is when your meta-narrative is based in this world, when your meta-narrative, your overarching story is based on just the things that you can see and touch and feel and taste, then you will find out that your life is hevel, hevel. If you want to learn a fun Hebrew word, this is a good one. Hevel is a word that gets translated in many different ways in different translations of the Bible because it's a kind of complex word. Uh, you might see it translated as any of these things, meaningless, vanity, vapor, smoke, paradox, or enigma. Uh, you saw in the translation that we read from the New International Version, they translated this meaningless, right? Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. That's what the author says. He's saying hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. And that's a fine translation, but I prefer the one that I highlighted there for you, vapor. Uh, and here's why. The, the word hevel doesn't denote a thing that has absolutely no meaning at all. Um, what it denotes is something that has a limited and uncontrollable meaning. And that's why I think vapor is a really good uh, word to describe this. If you see vapor, it's a thing. It's real. It does something. It has a purpose, but it is impossible to control and it is passing. I mean, think of it. It's a 35-degree day in the middle of summer, and you get a little bit of cold mist on your face. There's some meaning to that. That's comforting, right? That gives you some relief from the heat, but you, you can't reach out with your hand and grab that mist. You can't control it or bottle it up or take it somewhere with you because, well, it's just there for a moment, and then it's gone. And so, when the author says, Hevel, everything is meaningless, everything is vapor, he's saying there are things in your life that you will experience that will give you a moment of, of the feeling of meaning or a moment of pleasure or comfort, but they are ultimately uncontrollable and will not last. So to summarize everything we've got to this point, I know this is a lot of words on one slide. I'll leave it up here for a second so we can read it together slowly. But Ecclesiastes is a realistic take on life under the sun. 
right? A life without windows, a life without a worldview that goes beyond what I can see and touch and feel. And it concludes that no matter who you are, good or bad, hardworking or lazy, kind or cruel, selfish or selfless, your outcomes are essentially random. Therefore, everything you are chasing in your life is hevel, it is vapor, it is meaningless. So if that's the idea of where we're going, let's dig into the text and find out how he communicates this idea. If you want to follow along, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to go back to the beginning of Ecclesiastes and look at each of the verses. He starts by saying the words of the teacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, which we see is our marker as Solomon being the author. And he says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless, right? Everything is vapor. If you are trying to grab it, if you are trying to control it, if you're trying to find a way to keep it, whatever it is in your life, it will only last a little while. It is like grabbing at the mist. He then asks, Why do people, what do people gain from their labors at which they toil under the sun? So he first draws our attention to work and says, you can work at your job, but what are you actually working for? Like, what are you actually gaining from your job? Well, you might say money, okay, but money is going to go away. You're going to spend it, or you're going to die and leave it to somebody else. So that's vapor. You could say, well, it gives me a sense of purpose. Okay, but is that purpose aligned with the needs of everyone else in the world? And even if it does give you purpose, what happens when you fail? It's vapor. You can't hold on to it. He says, we don't gain anything from doing our work. It's all it's all vapor. It's all meaningless. He then moves on to generations. He says, generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. He says, the world communicates to us that life is meaningless. He gives them examples. Then he talks about that the sun rises and sets and keeps doing the same thing. It has been doing this for thousands of years and will continue on much after all of us are gone. He uses the wind as an example and says, it blows wherever it wants, but it never seems to stop. He talks about the rivers and streams which flow into the oceans, but the oceans never seem to fill up and the streams never seem to stop flowing. Everything continues on the way it always is. And so he says, look at the world around you. Your life is meaningless. You're not doing anything that changes anything about anything. You can work at it if you want, but honestly, you're just subsisting for a little while until you don't exist anymore. And so he says, all things are wearisome. Really, like, what am I working for? Nothing. I'm working to work. And that kind of takes out the, the feeling of meaning from that work, doesn't it? He then looks at our eyes and ears and says, even the things we consume are meaningless because he knows that's where you're going to go next. He's going to, you're going to say, well, if work is meaningless, well, then I might as well just get all the pleasure that I can out of life. I'm going to see the things that I want to see. I'm going to hear the things that I want to hear. I'm going to eat the things I want to eat. I'm going to fulfill all the appetites of my body. And he says, actually, that's not going to work either because you'll never come to the end of that desire. You'll keep wanting a little bit more. You want just another episode, just another show. You want a little bit more of that drink or that food or that experience or that travel or that person. You'll always want that little bit more. It will never fill you up. And so it's meaningless. It's simply filling a dark black hole in your soul. He then looks at the things that we create. We might say to ourselves, well, okay, if I'm not going to live forever and the things that I experience are not going to be forever, well, what if I make something that lasts forever? He says, no, it's not going to work either because nothing new is happening. Who can say that there is something new that we've made? 
You might say, well, what about like inventions or that sort of thing? No, that's still solving the same problems we have always solved for all of humanity's history. All we want out of life is to live, eat, procreate, and communicate. That's pretty much all humans do. And all of the things that we create are trying to serve those basic functions all the time. And we never seem to solve them, no matter how beautiful our technology or advanced our, our research. There's nothing new that's happening. Who can say, I've done something new? It was all here long ago. It was here before our time. And then he finishes with uh, kind of the nail in the coffin. He says, no one even remembers the former generations. And frankly, even those who are yet to come, they're going to get forgotten too. I mean, think about it. How many of us know our great-great-grandparents? Not many, right? How many know our great-great-great-great-grandparents? Almost nobody, unless you've done ancestry or something like that. Right? You needed a tool to remember the former generations because you don't remember them. And guess what? 150 years from now, 200 years from now, I bet no one in this room is remembered. Because that's just how it goes. The world keeps on moving. People forget about the former generations. Even the children who are in our congregation right now, someday everyone will forget about them. Your life is meaningless under the sun. You can think about it this way. If the world is just what we see and feel and touch and, uh, and taste and smell and hear, then eventually all life in, hum- in human existence is going to come to an end, one way or another. It just statistically has to. Either it's going to be some human-caused cataclysm or some um, natural-caused cataclysm, and all life is going to cease to exist. There will be no more people here. Which means that there will be no one around to remember anything that you did, good or bad. Even if you were like the most famous person who's ever lived, like one of you is going to solve climate change or you're going to stop World War III or whatever you think is the worst possible thing and you do it, eventually there will be no one around to remember you, which means that everything you do is meaningless. And if you were the worst person who ever lived, like you single-handedly caused climate change or single-handedly caused World War III or whatever you think is the worst thing you can do, eventually there will be no one here to remember you and it won't matter. Whether you do good or whether you do bad, in the grand scheme of life under the sun, nothing matters. Everything is vapor. Now let's ask this question. Why is the author to the Ecclesiastes saying this to us? Because this is pretty depressing. (laughs) I mean, if you hear all this stuff and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I am excited to go live Sunday afternoon after this, I think you're missing it, right? I don't think the author of the Ecclesiastes is just a troll. Like, he's like what we used to do on the, on the playground when we were kids. If we, like, didn't like one kid, we'd be like, nobody likes you. Like, your life has no meaning. I hope you die in a cornfield alone. You know, like, he's not doing that to us. He's trying to break us of a worldview that is fundamentally unsatisfying. A meta-narrative, a story we tell ourselves about ourselves that will not ultimately work. You can maybe think about it like how I go to my chiropractor. Some of you go to a chiropractor. Um, I just started going to the chiropractor, just trying to make sure that I'm aligned as I get older. And, and um, she, she took my head in her hands and she twisted it in, a, in an ungodly way that I thought I was going to die. Maybe some of you experienced this. Um, why did she do that? Is it because she hates me? Is it because she wants to kill me? No, it's because she believes that if she can crack my neck in a certain way, it's going to loosen up my spine so that my spine can be more aligned. And the author of Ecclesiastes is kind of doing the same thing with us. 
He's grabbing us by the neck and saying, your worldview doesn't make sense. Let me break it for you. So that you realize that what you live for every single day, the things you chase after, whether it's money or success or relationships or a reputation, whatever it is that you want that you think makes you okay and makes your life meaningful, it will ultimately dissatisfy you. It will not be enough. It will simply be vapor that you grasp after. I want to align you with a life that is meaningful. Now, most people don't want to hear this message. Maybe some of you have not even thought it before this moment because you subconsciously are avoiding the reality that you live in a world that without God is completely meaningless. And so what most people do is they try to find meaningfulness in life with the little things that they do day to day. They find meaning in the small things. They, they find meaning in a beautiful sunset or a nice trip or that moment of whole embracing their child or the love that they find with a significant other, an advancement in a company, whatever it is. You find these little things in life that try to make you feel like you're living a meaningful life, but brothers and sisters, they can't work. They can't work. Uh, to illustrate this to you, uh, I want to tell a story that I heard from another pastor, so I didn't, I didn't make this one up. Um, it, it's a story from an old comic strip. And in the comic strip, there are two characters. And one of the characters at the beginning of the comic strip is piling up a whole bunch of stones in the middle of the road. His other friend walks up to him and says, why are you piling up those stones? He says, well, so I can put a lantern on top. He climbs up on top of the stones and he puts a lantern on top of the stones. And the friend asks, well, why did you need to put a lantern up that high? And he said, so people can see. What do they need to see? They need to see the pile of stones in the road. You understand? Each of those actions had a purpose, a meaning, you could even say. To pile up the stones was to put the lantern high enough that people could see. And the lantern was there so that you could make sure that you didn't run into the pile of stones that was in the middle of the road. While both of those actions had meaning in themselves, when you back up and look at the whole, you realize none of it had any meaning at all. This is what the author of the Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us. Those little things that we do, we might feel like they have meaning, but when taken back and looked at as a whole, none of them really have meaning. You think you're going to find meaning in finding the right person? You think you're going to find meaning in raising your kids the right way, in growing your business, being the best person that you can be, being the best Christian that you can be? None of it really matters. What Ecclesiastes is trying to ultimately to do to us is trying to force us to admit that life taken as a whole, life without windows, is vapor. It is meaningless. But like I said, the author of the Ecclesiastes is not doing this for no purpose. He's trying to break us of our naturalistic, life without windows, meta-narratives, so that he can open us up to what could be a meaningful life for us. To see this, I want to share just a couple quotes from some famous Christians with you. C.S. Lewis, maybe some of you know that name. He wrote this, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The way he leads into this quote is by saying, Do fish ever complain about getting wet? No, fish don't complain about getting wet because that's what they're made for. Fish are meant to be in the water. Why is it then that human beings complain about being alive? Why is it that we struggle and suffer with our purpose in life? Could it be that maybe we were not made for this world, but made for another? 
The fourth century church father, Augustine, said it like this. He said, our hearts are restless, Lord, until they rest in you. Our life this side of heaven, without a a cognition of a God or anything going on outside of this life, is going to be meaningless. It's going to be restless. It's going to be that constant feeling that I'm in a rut, I'm stuck, I can't find the purpose for my life. But when you realize that, when the neck gets cracked, so to speak, then you can start to realize that your life could be aligned differently. It could actually, truly be meaningful. Ecclesiastes sets you free from something and to something. See, Ecclesiastes, when it breaks down your life under the sun worldview, first gets you to see that you have freedom from seeking meaning in the things of your life. It's a tyranny that you live under. Make more money, be more successful, be more well-liked, get somebody to love you, raise your kids the right way, be a good person, be a good Christian, be generous, be patient. It's a tyranny. You always have to try a little bit harder to be that thing, to make sure that you don't lose the meaning that you think you have or gain the meaning that you think you should have. But you're free. When you realize that none of it actually matters, you don't have to go into the things that you do under the tyranny of seeking meaning. You can say, you know, if I succeed at this or I fail at this, it really doesn't matter. I'm free. And you might say, well, wouldn't that lead anybody, uh, people to do whatever they want? Well, actually, usually it doesn't. Because once you're free, then you have the freedom to enjoy the things that you have in life. Instead of always trying to extract meaning from them, squeezing them like a sponge to try to get the love or affection or acknowledgement or purpose that you want out of those things, you can let them be. And you can enjoy them. And say, at the end of the day, if I don't raise my kids well, that's kind of meaningless. So I'm going to enjoy putting my best effort into raising these children well. Or if I get married or not, that's really ultimately meaningless. So I'm going to enjoy the relationships that I have and thank God if I get a spouse. Or if you're getting a little bit older, you're thinking about what is my purpose in life? What should I do now that I have the free time of retirement or I'm getting a little bit older to my, uh, a little bit closer to my uh, capacities being hindered? What should I do? It doesn't really matter. It's meaningless. So just enjoy the things that are in front of you. Serve the people that God gave you without the pressure of having to find your meaning in those things. Now, I would love to go farther on this, but I'm going to save it. Because we need to build the case all the way to the end of this series, where the last sermon in this series will be called Everything is Meaningful, and we're going to get the beautiful gospel that we get to see that life actually does have windows, and outside of those windows is an all-loving, all-powerful God who is watching over, controlling, and facilitating everything that he needs and wants from you so that you can have a meaningful life. We're going to get there, but we're not going to get there yet because we still need to break down some of these things. We need to go back to the chiropractor, realize that it's not only one time you get adjusted, you get adjusted a few times before you get a So we're going to go through the rest of this series seeing how wisdom and money and other things like that, they may make us feel like we have meaning, but they are ultimately meaningless. And finally, when we're loosened up a little bit, we'll let God align us so we can live a meaningful life. So let's stop there and let's pray. God, please help us to realize the meaninglessness of this life without you. As we go to our jobs on Monday, as we take our children home and continue to try to raise them, as we get closer to the end of our life, as we try to find the purpose in the things that we do, help us to realize that we will not find it without you. Help us to repent of that. 
and to find the freedom of realizing that it, it is ultimately meaningless, this side of heaven. And then help us to lean into you and realize that you give us meaning. Bless the rest of this study as we open up your word, as we have our worldviews shattered and rebuilt in the image of your son. We ask that in your name. Amen.